Dave Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. So, the reason we watched that video, uh, and I never tire of it, I watch it all the time. Uh, the reason we watch that is because it, it, it shows you, it gives you an idea of what, we have a pretty good idea of what, what it was like over our evolutionary history. Um, didn't talk a lot about behavior, talked a bit about it. One might ask, why would you study psychology from an evolutionary perspective? And the answer, I think, should be clear to all of you, but we're animals after all. And if we are animals, well, then why wouldn't we study these animals the same way we study other animals, with the same angle, the same perspective? Um, Darwin, in fact, talked about an evolutionary psychology. He didn't use the word psychology, but he certainly talked about characteristics that were based... uh, Sort of behavioral characteristics evolving, and he talked about the mind. In fact, in Descent of Man, uh, Darwin talks about how chimps will look at a waterfall and be sort of amazed by it, and also about how getting in my way pisses me off. He talks about that too. That's that's near the end. Uh, It's it's, it's the back uh, in the the footnotes. Um, Let's see. Better? No, not that one. How did you do that? Uh, yeah, at the end, Darwin talks about uh, when, 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 a, when a chimp sees a waterfall, and he says they have this look of awe on their faces um, that he calls primitive religion, which is kind of cool. Now, if I can just get this damn thing to work properly, because it got all knocked around. So that's like that. I've got that on the computer. Hello, computer. So did you say it's called primitive? Primitive religion. Yeah. That's what they're on. Okay, now. That. And I think it's going to come back right. Oh, there it is. So, that was annoying. And that was all because someone left a stupid 1930s piece of technology. (laughs) Okay, it actually hooks up to it. I think it's got a USB port in it, but nonetheless. Um, so Darwin talked about it. William James, who is the wrote the first psychology textbook ever called Principles of Psychology. If you are a psych major, which most of you are, you will take a course at the end of your career as psych students called The History of Psychology. And you will learn about William James. And you might have read into him in an intro. And William James, uh, he wrote the first book, Principles of Psychology. He talked about, in fact, he was what people call a functionalist. He looked at things from the angle of what did they accomplish. So, and you know what this is accomplishing right now? Okay, I could, I threatened it. And then it didn't work. Okay, now I'm just getting really angry because that's stupid. Okay, you're going to stay there right there. That, and then you're going to work. And then you're going to work. I am just at my wits effing end right now. This is so annoying for me. Come on, you're killing the flow. I was getting all, I was having fun. Okay, one more try. One more try. Come on, there you go. And you do this. 
sins. That is Stephen Pinker calls the standard social science model. And I'll tell you what that means in a second, but the fact that people generally, now I wouldn't, you wouldn't ask people, do you adhere to the standard social science model? They wouldn't, that's not, it, it's a thing Stephen Pinker has named in his book, The Blind Slate, which is a wonderful book. But it's not like you would ask people, do you adhere to the standard social science model? And say yes or no. Um, people don't have to think about that. He's given it this label. Um, this, of course, is going to affect their research and their you know, theories, hypotheses, etc. And now it did it again, and I'm about... Oh, okay. no, don't. Don't. Please don't. <laughs> okay. Um, and it basically is the notion that, that we don't have to worry about the evolutionary and biological angle about anything, about any behavior, about any cognition. And considering we're animals, it seems to me, this is completely obviously at odds with evolutionary theory, but it's also at odds with reality. Um, it's kind of like ignoring evolution for human behavior is kind of like saying, I'm going to do chemistry, but I'm not going to use the periodic table. You can't really do it. You probably could. You probably do a very good job, but you could do it. So I think people that are saying this are missing a lot of the story. So the assumption of the standard social science model, assumption one is that there's a blank slate, that basically experience writes on a blank slate, the tabula rasa, if you've heard that from, that's uh, John Locke, right, tabula rasa. The idea that all people are created equal, that everybody has the same potential, that everybody is a product solely of their environment, or almost completely of their environment. This is one of those assumptions. This is a hard one to say we don't like. One of the reasons it's hard to say we don't like is we're all nice, Western, liberal people. Uh, even if you're a conservative person, you still live in a liberal democracy where we think that everybody's equal and all these, every, this is the same people should have equal, shouldn't have equal rights or opportunities. This is the same that some people are born different than other people to a point. And it, it's more, way more complicated than that, but it's at least accepting that genetics play a role in who you are, in your behavior, in your thinking, that everything isn't your environment. It's not denying the affected environment. That would be stupid. But it's also not denying the effect of genetics and biology, because that also would be stupid. It's foolish to, to ignore either of those things. But the standard social science model says, oh no, it's, it's all environmental, it's all about how you're brought up. 
It's all about, and interestingly enough, unless you have something wrong with you. It's all about how you're brought up, except if you're mentally retarded, that clearly is genetic. We take credit as parents for good things our kids do, and for bad things, then, you know, we don't like it. Well, you know, what can you do? It's interesting. So, what comes out of this is that biology is irrelevant. If experience is all that matters, biology obviously has no effect whatsoever. Right? If it's only experience, then biology is no big deal. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't make sense to think this way. I'm saying you see that one follows with the other. Right? So biology then is irrelevant. So this is the idea, for example, and think about some of the things that would come out of this. If biology is irrelevant, women and men are exactly the same, behaviorally and cognitively. It must be. Even though we can look at men and women and say, well, we have different parts, different hormonal environments, none of those things must matter, though, because biology is irrelevant. And, and one thing, and this is a little more subtle that comes out of this, is if everybody is the same, and experience affects everybody the same way, it must be the case that there are very few learning mechanisms. There really is probably only one learning mechanism. Or maybe just a couple. Okay? Now this, like I said, this one's a little more subtle. And I don't think most people even think like this. But if I if, if I'm to say that it's all a blank slate and anybody can be turned, any man can be president. Right, the old American dream thing. If that's true, then experience must affect everybody roughly the same way. And it must be the simplest way to make that work would be one learning mechanism, or very few, maybe language and do I operate conditioning? That's like it. Right? So here's why. Hey, questions though. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you see? Maybe you can see this in thinking about class, class and classes. You probably would see a whole lot in our department, actually. We're pretty much all don't think this way. Yeah, please. Pink hair. Yeah. He's got giant hair. Just if you're ever trying to find him anywhere. He's got the greatest, biggest hair. Big, curly hair. He looks like he probably should be playing you know, in a Led Zeppelin tribute band. Yeah, she kind of looks like Robert Plant. <laughs> so, he's Canadian, by the way. Though he's an American citizen now, and he's at uh, uh, MIT. Where's Harvard? Oh, it's some meaningless little university down the States. MIT or Harvard. <coughs> he's on, he's on uh, Stephen Colbert all the time. He's been on the Colbert Report like five times. Yeah. He's kind of funny, too. So, why is this wrong? First of all, development needs biology. You can't study development of, of, of an animal without saying, but worrying about its biology. You can't. It's impossible. So when you hear language, for example, you learn language when you're a kid. Right? So, no, and no matter how many hockey statistics I flash at you, you'll not become a hockey uh, statistics expert by the age of four. 
I tried this with my children, it simply didn't work. No, I didn't. Mostly with Jonathan, it still didn't work. So just with one. If I look at you every day, when you're a little kid and say, Rocket Richard's worth 544 goals in his career. War number nine, like from 1944 to 1960. He's the first person to ever score 50 goals in 50 games. You know, doesn't, kids not gonna learn that. Well, why is that? <laughs> I mean, why doesn't that work? Because if there are, if learning is just a matter, if you're a blank slate, if I'm just firing hockey statistics at you, you actually let it all out of soak in. Kind of like language, do we have to actually sit kids down and teach them language? No. You just talk to babies, and by the time they're three, they just start, they start talking back to you. It's weird. Like, you have to sit, language is hard. Think about it. When you try to learn a second language as an adult, how hard is that? It's freaking hard. It's really hard. You know? And you look at something and you say, like, I know my wife, Isabel, she teaches um, French. And she's always going through all these like bazillion verb tenses. Because they get different verb tenses for different days of the week in French, right? So it's like, well, this is the, the future, but only on Thursdays if it's dark yet. <laughs> and so yeah, French is hard. You know what? If you learn French as a little kid, yeah, that's just trivial. Just like, English is weird that way, too. We've got our own weird things. I went instead of I go. <laughs> things like that. But you don't have to sit a kid down and say, now when you put ED at the end of the word, that's the past tense. They just learn it. And in fact, when you say went and go, one of the cool things that actually happened is at the very first, kids will say, I went for the past. But then they start to say, I goed for a while. Then they eventually learn that it's an exception. Because they just internalize the fact that you put ED at the end of a verb and it becomes the past tense. It just happens. They internalize it. We don't have to have little language classes for toddlers. There's no need. And in fact, if you speak two languages, in a house, they can learn two languages. Right? My, my mom were, uh, grew up in a French neighborhood in Montreal, but learned English at home. And my mom actually apparently could speak French pretty well because they moved to the English part of Montreal. Um, and it just wasn't around anymore. But she could, she like for her, uh, a chicken, was it when you cook it? It's a chicken. When it's alive, it's a pudding. Right, and the same sort of had all kinds of funny little distinctions like that. But the other thing is, kids that learn two languages at once, they don't mix the languages up. That's amazing. <coughs> We're just able to just internalize stuff, right? I can't look at my mom's dog and teach it English, no matter how hard I try. Can't look at that damn dog. They have you, Bailey. Be, you know what? Because it's a dog. Dogs can't learn language. Well, my dog thinks it's people. But I love the, but the, that whole thing. I know I don't have kids, but I have dogs. No, you see, that's different. <laughs> Way different. Would you ever leave it? Would you leave your dog in the house walk up for a day? Oh, I'll eat all the time. You can't do that with kids. It's illegal and wrong. Well, it's just the same statement of responsibility. No, it isn't. Do you have an RESP for your dog? 
Oh yeah, I'm standing up my to send her to obedience school. Okay, you're a freak. <laughs> I don't want to be your friend anymore. Why can't you remember where you hid 30,000 seeds six months ago? Because you're not a clock cracker. That's something they can do. They hide 30,000 seeds in a 40-kilometer radius in the fall, and six months later, remember where about 25,000 of them were. Uh, scattered locations, too, which is pretty cool. Pretty good. That's actually kind of awesome to think about. Right? You can't do Now, you know what the neat thing about humans is? Uh, I could write it down. We've, we could have, we could invent GPSs and write it, and I could write it all the hell down, and uh, then I still win. Screw you, Clark's not <laughs> But the thing is, you just can't. The Clark's not doesn't do that. It just remembers where it puts stuff. There are species differences. This is one of the indications here that there are different language, different learning mechanisms between species, for example. So what I'm saying here is there's such a thing as human nature. You will hear people say it, yeah, um, So for the SSSM model, yeah. do they believe like a blank slate for every animal or yeah. just humans? Well, they wouldn't even think about other animals typically. Uh, because I mean, typically they're not going to think about you know, rats, visions, etc. But the idea of different learners, any questions? But the idea of looking at only only one learning mechanism, that would certainly fit there and say that it works the same in humans as it does in pigeons as it does in rats. Would people who subscribe to this notion who are not especially ones not in psychology think of other animals? Not at all. Uh, they seem to have this notion that where there's something very special about humans. Yeah, there are pretty special things about us. There's stuff we can do that other animals can't do, what we're doing right now. But the notion that they would think that, oh, I don't know, that there are any commonalities between us because we're all animals, they're going to ignore that. Right? So if you were to say to somebody, there is, there's forced population in other species, in other words, rape. Okay, this happens a lot, for example, in ducks. Male ducks are horrible if you want to talk about more duck morality. Male ducks force copulate with female ducks. Not all the time, but they do. It's not uncommon. And the response you will get will be, well, that's nothing like raping humans. And yeah, in a lot of respects it isn't, but it's also a forced copulation. Or you'll say, for example, when a male lion takes over a new pride, the first thing he does is he kills the young. Because they're not his. Which has the function if he doesn't have to invest anything in anything that isn't related to him, first of all. And secondly, uh, it makes the females go back into the estrus and then they can get pregnant with his sperm. And you think, what's that have to do with humans? Well, it turns out the fact that um, step parents abuse their non biological kids more than their biological kids. And I'm not saying you're a step child that you were beaten or that your stepfather or mother is evil. I'm saying on average it's more likely when we look at cases of child abuse that it is a step parent than a, a biological parent. 
So you can say, look, we can see things from other animals as well. So, but they, those people would then, the, the SSSM folks would say, well, those are, that's different. We're humans. They, they put us on some kind of pedestal that we're not animals anymore. You know? The only thing they'll ever say is, well, yeah, we have biology. I mean, I'm being a little facetious in characterizing them as all idiots, which is probably a little strong. But yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Other questions? So this then brings up the nature versus nurture thing. Um, the standard social science model divides nature and nurture into two things. So nature, of course, you're, what you walk with, nurture your environment. So it divides into two things. And this is actually just completely freaking pointless. Because you cannot have one without the other. Can you have biology without an environment? Well, no. Can you have an environment without biology? Well, it's there, but who cares? Right? Trying to determine how much of a characteristic is due to its uh, to, 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 to genetics and how much is due to the environment. It's like they're trying to determine how much of the area of a field is due to its length and how much is due to its width. So I'll look at my quote, which it was. Very clever. So you can't have one without the other. It's what's called the interaction principle. If you ask a biologist, by the way, what's more important to my trees, trees, the, the genes in them or that I give them water? They're going to look at you like, are you an idiot? Go ask Brandon Champ that question. Go ask Ishvan that. And he would go, well, would you ask me that question? <laughs> hey, what you do with yours? And then he'll look at you and say, it's sort of a stupid question. Because it's a stupid question. Right? They always believe that the notion, this interaction between environment and, 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 and biology just makes sense. And genes, you all, you will hear people that will accept the idea that genes have an effect on behavior. They will, they will tell you things like genes set a limit. Right? But that's all they do. A friend of mine uh, once said that uh, he had his email signature. This is years ago. This is back when people used his email signatures and have, play, have, have like three big long quotations in them, like really long ones. I thought I had a little thing in mind just as I'm doing science and I'm still alive. That's it. But there are people that have like these little easy This was a thing in the 90s when email first started. People would have like big long quotes. And his was, you know, the genes put, uh, build the eyes, but the environment puts the sparkle in your eyes. And, and, I, I, and I'm not going to tell you who it is because it's somebody you all know. I'm not going to tell you who it is. But I said to him, listen. That's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Genes and environment interact. I looked at it and he said, actually, I know that. I don't know what the hell I have that my signature for. I thought it was a clever line. I just went to throw my cough drops at That'll learn it. Actually, I am very angry at you. You, you son of a... Thank you. It's really, I don't know what's going on. This is very strange. I'm going to have to not use my computer, and I hate that because I can't walk around. 
players all night. I've seen that happen before. Um, so learning, for example, needs an environment and a mechanism. Like you have to have a learning mechanism, and something had to build the learning mechanism. Right? Something had to build the learning mechanism. And what you need, some sort of neural network sort of deal. And then what happens is the learning mechanism is affected by the inputs from the environment. But then think about this, even something this simple. You learn how to learn, don't you? So you just look at completely psychological principles. You learn how to learn. This would have been, this kind of class would have been something very difficult for you to, to deal with when you were 14. And it's not because the material's horribly hard. It's because the depth of it's hard. Right? And when you're 14, you don't know enough how to learn things. How do you try to learn things when you're 14? You just keep writing stuff down. And then you just read the book, hoping that somehow it will just seep in. Right? Some of you are going, that's all I study now. <laughs> it's not how you're supposed to study. Right? And if you're good at school, you know that you study interactively, you ask yourself questions. So you can actually affect the learning mechanism. Right? So you're just looking at that. So learning needs the mechanism for experience to change behavior, and experience will affect the mechanism itself. Um, the standard social science model and general, just putting it together with all other natural sciences, it's basically studying behavior in a vacuum because it's ignoring the rest of the sciences. Right? It's ignoring the rest of the sciences. You don't ignore biology. Just like I said before, you don't ignore physics if you're doing chemistry. Like I said, yeah, you're like exempting the behavior of organisms from the principles of biology is like exempting behavior of atoms from the principles of physics. Do people do chemistry and not do physics? Well, yeah, sure. People who are researching chemistry aren't really every day going, well, I wonder about physics, etc. But they are ignoring its existence. And if you are saying that all that matters with us is the environment, that's what you're doing. You're doing the same thing as someone who's saying, I do physics, I do biology, I do chemistry without doing, uh, without, without knowing any physics and I don't care. And that's just crazy talk. Right? Like, look at sociality. In fact, we're a pretty social animal. Look at what we're doing right now. You're all sitting in a room together. We can't ignore the evolution of sociality in other species and in us. Because a lot of people will say, well, yeah, okay, I accept that we're biological entities, etc. But, you know, all the social things that humans do, that's not something that's about biology. And in fact, again, that's kind of a silly thing to say. And I think that the, the video did a nice job demonstrating some of that stuff. But, I mean, we can take a look back in evolutionary history and see that us being social is an important part of being human. 
the fact that we lived in groups, we're pretty sure for the long, most of the period of human evolution, we lived in family groups of about 30. And family, extended family, right? So it's cousins, uncles, brothers, sisters, parents, grandparents, etc. Family groups around, maybe probably a little larger than 30. If we've been living like that for hundreds and thousands of years, I think that's going to have some effect on us. In fact, it seems to me that's a given that that would have some kind of effect on us. Social behavior evolved like other behavior, like other characteristics. Now, so question about that, because before I go into Timbergen. Okay, Nico Timbergen, who um, won a Nobel Prize, and he was Richard Dawkins' PhD supervisor, so he's telling me a kind of high-level guy, said that to truly understand behavior, we have to understand it from four different angles. And I got whys in close. Some people say it's the four whys. None of them actually have the word why in them. So you could probably reword it that way. We can also talk about this being proximate versus ultimate explanations. Proximate are within an animal's lifetime. Ultimate are over evolutionary time. I don't like that terminology. Uh, I simply don't like it because it makes ultimate sound better. And it isn't meant to be better. Uh, it's just different level. And even level of explanation I don't like. Because you hear the proximate level and the ultimate level, it still sounds like one's better than another, but there are terms that are used. So we've got development. How does the behavior develop through the animal's lifetime? And you can talk about humans or any other. Okay? And then the physiology. What is the biological physiological basis, I guess we'll say probably most of the time here, in the nervous system. Now what does this include here? This will include things like learning. Because that's a physiological mechanism. Then we can look at historical stuff and selective stuff. So historical is over time how has this changed? Over evolutionary time, how has this behavior changed? And the selective kind of explanation is how has it benefited the animal? What, what is the survival, survival value of this? So we can think about language here. Language is a great example, human language. First of all, developmentally. And how many of you here have actually taken or are taking the language course with Lori? Yeah, so you already probably know more than I do. But I can say that what? You learn, you think about the intro psych level, you talk about, you learn language, you got one word stage, then you got your two word stage, then you go to, don't go to three word stage, you go to complete sentences, then your vocabulary gets bigger, there's generalization errors in there, all that kind of stuff. And that doesn't matter what language you're learning, which is very cool, again, we are humans. So it doesn't matter if you're learning English or French or Arabic or Swedish. 
or, 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 or Anishinaabeg. It doesn't matter what language you are learning, that's how it works, which is pretty freaking cool. We are humans first. No matter what language you learn. Physiologically, we know that it's controlled, the production of language is controlled by Broca's area in the left uh, frontal, sorry, left temporal lobe, right about there. And right temporal, there's some stuff that deals with uh, tone of voice in production. And then here for reception, Wernicke's area, left temporal, uh, right temporal Wernicke uh, does a little bit about, again, um, looking at emotion. Uh, and, and things uh, intense in language. But for meaning, it's all left. Historically, how did language develop over time? These are neat questions, because this is one of those great times. I love anything interdisciplinary. I love anything where we can talk. You can get a psychologist and a biologist and a, and a, uh, a chemist and all these people together. And in this case, you can say a linguist. And they can all get together and talk about stuff from different angles same kind of question. And we can look at the history of language. Um, do we know when language first showed up? We can only guess. We do, however, know when Broca's area showed up because you take a look at um, skulls and you do a cast of the inside and you can see if that part of the brain is there, which is pretty freaking cool. We also know that chimps have a proto version of Broca's area. It doesn't do language, obviously. The video's probably right. Probably Homo ergaster is the first human that made that did something like language. We're pretty sure that Neanderthal had language. We're pretty sure that we obviously have language. We're pretty sure that Hylogodensis had language. Okay? But then you can look, for example, at, and this is, I love when linguists do this stuff, looking at the history of language, because you can look at certain words and look at how they, there are any similarities or differences. And one of the words that's often used, a couple of them used, mother and father. And if you look at the diminutive form of those words in almost all languages, it's mama for mother, and papa or baba or dada for father. Now, there's a good reason for this. The first phoneme a kid can make is mama. And then, by the way, again, it doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter if you, I'm going to go into that Michael Jackson song now. I don't want to. Uh, it doesn't matter if you are a Muslim or a Buddhist. It doesn't matter where you were born. It's just what humans do. And the first thing a kid says that sounds vaguely like the word is mama. And what a parent say? They say he said mama. They didn't know. But of course. What are little babies probably crying for usually or saying that probably talking about mom? And we can look at the word mother and father and see how they've changed over time in different languages, which is really cool. Right? That's the one, one of the bad things about being a psychologist and doing stuff like that is when your kid first says mama and your wife goes, You said mama, or you said mama, and not really. <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble. It's just a phoneme, testing out phonemes. I'm such a dick. <laughs> selective pressure. What's the selective advantage here? Well, it's pretty obvious. I mean, it, the selective advantage to being able to use language. Right? Well, we can, we can use to each other. It's got to be good. It's got to be good. So, 
So just understanding something, that's a very complicated set of behaviors and rather overarching, rather big. But we can still understand behavior from those four angles. That's Tim Bergman's four wise. It's sometimes broken down a little bit differently. Sometimes you'll hear development and physiology slash genetics. But it's all along the same lines. Psychology generally has concentrated on the, what are called the proximate explanations, which are development and physiology in Tim Bergman's angle. Bergen's formulation. And there's nothing wrong with those things. You have to understand something, you have to understand those things too. But we've ignored the historical and selective explanations. We've ignored those things. So why is it that humans feel guilt or shame at certain things? I don't think a lot of other animals feel guilty. Right? I don't think you get a lot of other animals sitting there going, I really probably shouldn't have done that. Right? Look at, look at mating systems in humans. We pretty much are, we stay with one partner at a time generally. Generally. We're, we're polygamous mildly. Males have more sex partners than females. Um, where does that come from? That kind of thing. So there's a lot of things that we can, and we can look at, and those are great to look at from developmental angle and the physiological angle. So look at the learning as well. That, again, that's sort of in the physiology camp. Look at how it develops. Those are great questions. There's nothing wrong with answering those from those perspectives. But you're missing half the freaking story here. Half the story is, is, is like you're ignoring it. We're supposed to be the experts in behavior, and for years, very many years, we ignored half the explanation of, of the behavior we were interested in. So there is, the key point I'm trying to make is there is human nature. One of the people that kind of said there wasn't any human nature, or the human nature was to live harmoniously together and all have sex with each other, is Margaret Mead. I am being a little facetious there, but not that much. Um, she basically, in her sort of travels to uh, basically islands in the Pacific, she said, look, it must all be cultural, and it's all social, and there can't be any effect of biology, because everybody here lives peacefully. And everybody here screw everybody else, and everybody's naked. That's not actually how she worded it. I'm paraphrasing. I'm summarizing. And it's funny because she said that, and no one else followed it up. I knew it. Oh wow! Well, that fits with my politics. Everybody is equal. Everybody has every opportunity to do everything. Everyone will live peacefully, and there is no war. Imagine there's no heaven, and it's easy if you try. I went with little John Lennon there. Nobody? Nothing? Okay. <laughs> Imagine there's no countries. You know, great song, by the way, about the sentiment, except that there is human nature. And I think there's always going to be countries that are going to be war, which really isn't nice. This had a huge effect in anthropology and sociology, I would say. Not a, and a big effect on psychology, too, because it's like, oh, yeah, well, if it's all environment, we're basing our way of thinking about things on what one person did. And you're saying, well, what about Darwin? Yeah, the difference is Darwin was right. One person said anthropological investigations, or 
And there's some question as to whether she told the whole story. I'm not going to call Margaret Mead a liar. I'm not going to question her uh, ability. I wasn't there. I will leave that to Stephen Pinker in the book of Mike's life. Um, the thing is, it turns out this isn't true. If you go back to a lot of those cultures that she visited in Southeast Asia and the islands of the Pacific, there are really clear dominance hierarchies. Everybody isn't treated equally. The chief gets more copulations with the women than everybody underneath him. Just, in other words, it's a regular old human society. Oh, and there are wars. And this isn't just the effect of us showing up, us being people from the West. So, basically her idea, and the idea that a lot of people in anthropology, sociology, psychology, okay, is that there is no human nature, that we're blank slates. And I think one of the ways to look at this is that we are, there are, what are I like to think of what are the universal people. So that's why I keep saying we're humans. We're not black, we're not white, we're not Muslim or Christian. We're not, it doesn't matter what, you think of any way of ca- categorizing yourself. And those things do affect our behavior. I'm not denying that. Those things affect your behavior. Your culture affects your behavior. I'd be stupid to say it didn't. But there's a lot of human nature. There's like, we're all humans. There are things about us. I mean, this may sound a little bit sort of like Pollyannish, but there's a lot more in common among us than not in common. Remember in the video, we all descend from about 2,000 people. There is less genetic variation in humans than in any other primate. We are more the same than we are different. There is human nature. And maybe that's why it's hard for people to say this human nature, because they don't see it, because we're all so similar. Humans are humans. People are people. So why should it be that you and I should get along so awfully? The Depeche Mode song from 1986. Boom, boom, boom. But they're on vinyl. Couldn't be prouder. <laughs> It's hard to change how over 100 years of scholarly work with me sitting up here ranting, though I'm doing my best. I'm trying to I want you to understand, though, but when I say there's human nature, it doesn't mean I say, I say things are unchangeable. Because, see, that would be stupid of me. There's variability due to the environment and variability due to genes. Okay? I mean, here in behavior or cognition. We could talk about running speed if you wanted to, too, but let's just, let's think about it, which is, I guess, that's behavior. Or height. 80% of the variance in your height is due to your genes and 20% is due to your environment. But that doesn't mean that, eight, that like up to here, up to your neck, that that's your genes and then above that is your environment. It's their statistical concepts. So the interaction of these things is what's these things is what's important here. And those of you that have taken twenty one twenty seven, for example, know about interactions, or you, you don't. You really took it already. But it's the idea that the whole is worth the sum of parts, right? It's the two things working together. 
Uh, the book has a bunch of uh, examples here, so I'm not going to go into them. But the book has a nice example here about violence. So take a look at that. Um, I think it's in the first or second chapter, I'm not sure which. But we can look at a lot of traits in humans, and we can see that the environment and the genes interact together to lead to behavior. One of my favorites here, when we're going to look at human nature and say that, how, it, well, and also this, this demonstrates a few things. This demonstrates the idea that behavior can affect biology, biology can affect behavior, but also it demonstrates that you don't have to be conscious of things for them to happen and for them to be this sort of evolutionary explanation of this. And this is the investigation to the killer spurt. When, first of all, how is this research done? This research was done by somebody putting an ad in the newspaper saying, are you cheating on your husband or wife and would you like to make some extra money? And people, what they did is they collected sperm from carnivores when they were having sex with their wife or having sex with their husband or having sex with their girlfriend or boyfriend. In this case, girlfriend or boyfriend means person you're cheating with, okay? Because you're already married. So, remember when you were in grade 8 and you were learning about sperm and your teacher was all embarrassed turning red? Right? And there's a movie about, talking about sperm. And then at the end, the teacher had to ask questions, answer questions and you would ask, you would always be a smart ass in the class and ask really embarrassing questions to the teacher just to see if they could really embarrass the teacher. It's fun stuff. It's, it's what kids do. But remember you were always told about the sperm that were malformed? Many of the sperm are malformed. They, they really aren't uh, going to get the not going to fertilize an egg. You know what a lot of them do? They go in and they kill other guys' sperm. Killer sperm. <laughs> when a man is having sex with his lover, not his wife, his ejaculate contains more killer sperm. There's also more sperm in general in his ejaculate than there is when he's with his wife. When a woman has sex with her lover, sorry, with her husband if she's cheating on somebody, she's more likely, her, her vaginal secretions are more acidic. They will kill the husband's sperm. Now, think about this. What's the function of sex? The function of sex is to make humans, right? Pass your genes on. Why do people cheat on their husbands or wives? Well, a myriad number of reasons, but rarely are they trying to have a child, right? That's not the point. Usually, that's not what they're trying. In fact, they're, they're, they would go to length, for example, using condoms, make sure they don't have a kid. But their body doesn't know that. Their body that has millions of years of evolution in it, takes it as this is another mating opportunity. Why am I choosing to mate with someone else? Because they're a better father or mother than the one I'm currently with. So I'm trying to get this one pregnant and make sure others don't get it pregnant. Or I'm trying to get pregnant and make sure others don't get me pregnant. It's in fact literally the, the, 
what happens with the sperm and the vaginal secretions is exactly the opposite of what the people want. They don't want kids with their lover. There's probably people like that. But, you know, usually that's not what people want. So, there's that. See, this is... Human nature can be kind of ugly, too. <laughs> Questions about that? So, the first sperm thing would just be a natural response to encourage irritation? Uh, no, because, in fact, when I'm with... Uh, I shouldn't say me, because it's all weird. When one is with one's partner, right, the sperm are... The, the killer sperm are there. Right. It's only when you're with the person you're cheating with. Because you're trying to kill that person's partner's sperm. That's called sperm competition. And it happens, it's interesting, the more sperm competition there is in a species, the more um, times that a female mixes with multiple males, the males of that species have, have, have bigger uh, testicles. You would expect the devices. It's really just sperm competition. Other species do this, by the way, exactly the same kind of thing, except like in a lot of bugs, there's a sperm plug. So like when two dragonflies mate, the la- after the male is inseminated the female, he inserts a sperm plug. <laughs> it's like it's like a thing of wax that he inserts to make sure that if anybody else goes and mates with their well, it's too bad, the sperm aren't gonna get in there. Then there's adaptations where they, they can rip the sperm plug out. Yeah, it's all an arms race. Evolution is one big arms race. And on that note about dragonfly sex, <laughs> we'll meet again next time. Thanks, guys.
This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadback slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.